I'm Sarah Adams, and this is Go Time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. All right, everybody, welcome back for another episode of Go Time. This is episode number five. Uh, today we have uh, Brian Kettleson here. Say hello, Brian. I'm not here, though. I'm in San Francisco this week. Hello. Yeah, that's very true. You're, you're part here. <laughs> You're not here anyway. This is all virtual studio. That's true. We also have Carlicia here. I am not also not there. I am in San Diego. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> and today on the show, we have a special guest with us, Sarah Adams, who most of you know as an engineer, speaker, and also the founder of Women Who Go. Hi. How are you, Sarah? I'm in the city too, San Francisco. So is everybody in California but me today? That's correct. Sounds like it. I, I knew I was getting left out here. You have some serious <laughs> FOMO going on, Eric. Fear of missing out. But see, I'll be having dinner before you guys, though. I have less work when, when we're done. <laughs> you know, the problem with being out here is that my kids start sending me text messages at three in the morning. Oh, no. Yeah, that's always rough to get kind of like synced up with the kids and family. It, the whole thing is, you think three hours isn't that long, but it's a lifetime. It's a lot. It is. It's like everybody's going to bed before you're having dinner and everybody's like having lunch when you're waking up. <laughs> so All right. Got, What's that? We've got a lot to talk about this week. I think we should dive in. There's, yeah. there's a lot happening. Yeah. So um, last week we talked a bit about uh, the 1.7 stuff and some of the performance change uh, improvements there. And over this past week, um, Dave Cheney put together some visualizations of that, which really kind of blew my mind because I knew there was improvements. But we're, we're, we've cut uh, what less than half or more than half the difference between 1.4 and 1.6 yeah. out of the way. So, we're, I mean, we're, we're halfway we're back there. to where we were. <laughs> which is fabulous because Go has really great compile times and it's, it's nice to see that coming back down to in, insanely great. And then uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it pre or in, you know, less than one four. That, that'd be a great achievement. Imagine being even faster than one four was. Is it even possible? Is it on the cards <laughs> though? Anything's possible with SSA. And have you seen the team working on that? The, the brain trust will make it happen. I have yeah. confidence. It's who's working on it. Uh, I'm trying to think of who's specifically working on that functionality. See that one. I, I, I do you remember Brian? Who who the specific team was working on the SSA stuff? I don't know the whole list of team. No. So we'll we'll uh, we'll look that up and then we'll put it in the show notes. So other big news this week: the context package is now going to be in standard live. This is huge, huge. I'm so excited about it. And the, the, way, yeah, that, I'm really excited. the way that they've engineered it is, um, is really nice too. So that if you're using 1.7, it'll use the one in standard live. And if you're not using 1.7, it'll continue to use the one in the net package. So that's, that's really awesome. 
Oh, yeah, nice. that's fantastic because gRPC and all that stuff depends on uh, the context package. And we've been using that for, I don't even know how long that's been floating around. I'm, I'm really glad to see it kind of uh, pulled in. And Sarah, you were saying something about the context package? Um, yeah, no, I'm just excited for it to be in the standard library. It's just a cool addition. Yeah, and hopefully a lot more people will start using it as part of their packages where they expose kind of uh, network requests and things like that. Because that's yeah. really the power in it is having the, the context kind of forwarded along so that you can you can stop it anywhere yeah, so in the process. So all you, all you um, library developers out there, if you're not putting uh, context as the first parameter of your public functions, now is a great time to start doing that, please. And the emphasis please. is well, on I, please. I wanted to say please. <laughs> I, I don't want to sound too bossy. I, I can come across that way sometimes. And from my little experience, no. from the little experience that I have with Go, I see a lot of times when people use uh, other network packages just so they can get the context. And I would even do that because I don't want to do that stuff by hand. But now that it's in the standard library, I just I wonder how it's if it's going to impact the usage of other lib of their external libraries, or if people are just going to have to keep ahead and keep adding more features to make it more attractive for people to use them. But I mean, is is it really a competition though? You know, I think at the end of the day, it's about writing good quality software, and that's readable. And I think that by having uh, external libraries that people really like. I mean, and we kind of get consensus on these patterns. I think it's okay to pull that stuff in because not everybody's going to be aware of these things, despite how much visibility we think they have. Um, whereas people find stuff in the standard library, that's generally where people look first. So I think it, it's a hard debate, right? We, we're kind of pulling away users from some standard library, but I think that the library owners are probably glad to see it there because I think it'll get more love in the standard library too. It'd certainly be easier to use. Yeah. Um, I wonder how the Gorilla Toolkit is going to change because of this because they ha they've implemented their own network context, I think. I haven't used it in a while. Yeah, Gorilla has its own context and every other MUX on the planet has its own context. I'm really excited about them not having yeah. their own context. I hope I hope that they all converge to use the standard live context. That's actually really interesting. I hadn't even considered that. I mean, I've used uh, the Gorilla Mux um, in the past couple of years, but I don't think I've used anything else from the Gorilla stuff in a while. So it'll, that'll actually be really interesting to see how that's adapted to this. Yeah, and I think the Gorilla Mux even imports its own Gorilla context um, like within the MUX package. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if they, if they go forward with the, with the ghost standard library context. We should email them and ask. <laughs> yeah. Open a issue on the GitHub repo. M maybe one of their developers is one of the <laughs> two listeners. <laughs> uh, all right. So, um, one of the other projects, uh, that I've been using recently is vendor check. And I noticed that they they got a, an update uh, that now tells you your deprecated dependencies, which is awesome. So basically, it goes through your uh, vendored path, and oh, nice. uh, it's just a, a minus U flag, and it'll, it'll tell you used. all your unused. Now, this 
This uh, is interesting because we yeah. talked about the blog post that this originated from in our last episode, the Cloudflare blog post about uh, creating the simplest possible SSA tools. So VendorCheck was a an extension of that, and it's nice that it's getting some very usable features. It'll be good to get that vendor directory pruned as needed. It sounds to me almost like vendor check should be right side by side with Fumped. Yeah, and Go Imports. It's it's definitely a, yeah a must have tool. Yeah, and I think that the vendor stuff is probably early um, for that stuff to kind of get pulled in, at least adopted by the Go team, right? Because yeah. I mean, it's only been recently that uh, there's been kind of this agreement that maybe maybe the Go tooling should handle vendoring more. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how much they think should be pulled in. Um, but I imagine we'll start seeing tools like um, Vimgo and all that jazz incorporating in this and some of like the meta exactly. um, tooling. But there's like yeah. Go Meta Linter and stuff like that that runs all the, the suite of different I tooling. I can totally see that happening too. So on that note, on the, the idea of having vendor tooling being built into Go itself, I know that... Uh, Andrew Durand was talking about sponsoring a talk or a, a panel discussion on the Hack Day at GopherCon on the 13th of July uh, for an hour or so talking about packaging and vendoring. So if, if you've got strong opinions on that, you might want to come to Denver in July and and get together and talk to the Go team directly about um, package management and vendoring. That would be a great opportunity to, to have your voice heard. And strong opinions in general. Um, I know that they're wanting to do kind of a panel discussion, or not panel, but um, a collaborative session um, with big Go users and, and kind of seeing what pain points are there and how people feel that uh, the Go team and can, can ease those pains and make it easier to adopt and use Go, or easier, I should say. And on that topic, there is a, an issue opened on the Go repo where... They just pull in all everybody's opinion into one place. At, at least they put links to, to things. And it's probably something good to read through if you are going to go to this, uh, to this event and discuss. So you have all the information. It's a, it's a really long issue. Yeah, it's huge. But it's just, it's not the, the Go team endorsing any way or another. But any any opinion or another or or other is just just gathering everybody's opinion in one place and gi giving it as it is. Okay, this is what people are saying. Let's just have it here, so we're not replicating this all over the place. So we have a starting point. We don't have to go back and talk about things that we already talked about. So it's all in there. It's very very interesting. I have to pull that up when I have a weekend. <laughs> It's or however long, longer that than thing a weekend. Is. Yeah, I, a I can only read. imagine. Yeah, it's, it's plain time travel. And, and it's not. It's not like light reading. It's very thoughtful uh, expressions of how things could be could be done technically. I'll find it. I'll find a link. Awesome. So on on a sad news side of things, um, did anybody see the uh, email that Rob Miller sent out to the Heka mailing list? I did. No, what? Very, very sad. Yeah. Yeah, so Rob Miller works for Mozilla on a tool called HECA. Um, what, how would you best describe HECA, Brian? Um, HECA is a 
stream processing tool that you can use to take inputs and process them and munge them and do strange things with them and, and send them back out to other places. So it's uh, one of the most common use cases for Hacker would be um, log aggregating and management. And But it, it's it's significantly more complicated than that. But that's probably the best use case for it is, is moving logs from here to there. Yeah, it's um, basically like a... Uh, pipeline and there's different inputs you can swap out so collectors uh, and emitters and things like that um, so you can take inputs from various different types of systems and you can uh, output to various types of systems there was a really interesting um, project and he presented it at GopherCon 2014 and uh, I mean by all accounts it seems like people are using it um, but I think he's been primarily the core maintainer of it and uh, they're using something else internally at Mozilla and he hasn't had the time and is going to continue to have less time so I think that that's probably going to be um, I don't know whether deprecated is the right word for it Dis discontinued Mozilla support perhaps or Mozilla sponsorship and I think that they're open to somebody else taking over the project but you know, they don't have the time to to help um, facilitate that that takeover either. Um, and I think he expressed some concerns about um, even the patterns that was designed under um, the uh, that the channel, the way they were using channels, uh, wasn't quite hitting the performance levels that they were wanting and things like that. And he kind of believed that there'd be some heavy refactoring. And maybe we can get him on the show and talk about it a little bit more in depth, um, what his thoughts are. That'd be a great idea. We'll link to the mail list announcement in our show notes. Um, and it's it's way too long to discuss here. But the, the main takeaway from the email that he sent out was that the refactoring required to make HECA perform significantly better than it does now, which is actually really solid performance. Uh, but to get to that next level, it would require... Uh, less use of channels and that's probably a, a good show topic for us at some point is talking about um, the performance of channels under significant load and you know when channels are great and when they aren't that would be an amazing topic I, i'm sure a lot of people can benefit i can benefit from it so before we get into uh some discussions about uh all the things that sarah is is doing these days. Um, we typically go through some like interesting Go projects because Brian just is like full of just this encyclopedia of projects. But before before we go into that, we don't need Brian anymore. Have you guys seen the Lib Hunt thing that was going around? No. There's now the Go Lib Hunt. It's go.libhunt.com. And you can basically browse around, uh, categorize projects and libraries in Go, and they you know, kind of rank them. Just because somebody lists a bunch of libraries in Go does not replace my curation, Eric. <laughs> the added value that I bring every week to the curation of cool projects is what's important here. You cannot replace <laughs> me with a Bash script. We can try. We can try. Ryan, what's, what's your process? How do you, how do you find new Go, Go projects? I, before I go to bed every night, I look at Reddit, the Golang Reddit 
thing just to see if there's anything anything interesting there. I don't get a lot out of Reddit these days, but I have a special query on GitHub that I use to see um, recently updated or recently created Go projects, and I just scan through them looking for things that that sound exciting that that I haven't seen before. And that query can be oh. yours for just three easy payments of fifty nine ninety. Exactly. <laughs> And actually, I'd be happy to post that query in the show notes, too, because it's there's nothing magic to it. It's just a really long GitHub query. Yeah, I used to use, um, I had an app. It, was, it wasn't called StumbleUpon, but it was something like that, where you, where they um, it acts like StumbleUpon, where you can look through, and you can have filters, like a Go project or whatever. It looks through GitHub and like helps you stumble upon Go projects that are relatively popular. That's pretty cool. That's nice. All of, all of those queries are prone to error because if if GitHub's detection of the project type isn't accurate because maybe you don't have any Go files in the root or, or whatever they use to detect the projects, you know, they might be excluded. And that's... Is that's that common? Pain. It is. I've seen projects that don't list themselves as the primary language that they are just because oh, okay. whatever GitHub uses to detect that was thwarted by maybe their directory layout or or whatever. I'm not sure how that detection works. I mean, whether it's like what percentage of the code base is in what, because I mean, if you had like, say, uh, Grafana, right, that's a bunch of Go, but it's it's a whole lot of web stuff too, HTML and CSS and JavaScript too. So is there more than, more of one than the other? And does that cause I've always false wondered positives? that too. If somebody knows, please. You can also specify when you're creating a repo um, what really? language the project is. Um, well, I, I think it just helps you them generate the git ignore. I've never seen that. Interesting. But I'm not sure if they keep that data. Yeah, I wonder if they store that as metadata. I, I've never yeah. done that specifically, so I don't know. I've, like Sarah said, I think I've only used it once just to generate the oh. git ignore. So yeah. now that Eric has tried to replace me with a website, <laughs> it's the time pressure is on. Yeah, the next segment of our show is where we each talk about interesting Go projects that we've perhaps stumbled upon in the, the past week. And I'll start, since I'm bringing the most value here, I'm, I'm really angry with you, Eric, now. <laughs> this, this isn't going to fly. So the thing I found this week that I thought was really cool was um, a combination of one that I talked about previously, which is Minio, uh, S3 object storage clone that you can deploy on your own hardware or on the cloud somewhere that gives you... Uh, an S3 compatible object storage pool, uh, and another project that is awesome, which is Kubernetes. So the uh, Deus team, uh, Deus is a platform as a service on top of Kubernetes. They created a Minio storage plugin for uh, Kubernetes. So you can use Minio S3 storage for your Kubernetes uh, cluster. And it's got some really tight integration with Kubernetes. Looks really awesome. So uh, Two great tastes that taste together. They taste great together again, which is uh, Minio and Kubernetes. That's at GitHub.com/deis/minio. So I will go next. Um, one. Uh, so I saw this a while back, and I think it was really in its infancy, which is um, Lime Text, which is like a Sublime Text clone, but written in Go, and it's actually been coming along, uh, coming along quite well. And I was actually curious whether Carlicia had tried it because I know you're a Sublime no. user, right, Carlicia? No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, I thought you were a Sublime um, user. I used Sublime. I've used it, but used I stopped using yeah. it long ago. 
I haven't heard of Lime. Have you checked it out, Sarah? No, I haven't. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, so this is actually pretty interesting because, I mean, you can't get me away from Vim, but I feel like if you could, it might be Sublime. And this makes it kind of enticing because if I wanted to modify the editor, mm. I could actually do it in Go. Well, yeah, there's, it's, it's interesting from another perspective in that it's, it's almost modeled on the Emacs and NeoVim uh, server and client model. So the, the Lime Text app has a back end and then it can have multiple front ends. So you could actually use um, a command app, command line app to use Lime Text or you, they've got a, a QT based editor for a graphical environment, but the back end stays the same. So that makes it unique, I think, in terms of, of Go-based text editors that, that certainly made it more interesting to me. I do want to check it out, though. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an Atom user. I use it with the Vim plugin, but uh, this looks cool. I don't know why I thought you used Sublime, but now I remember Atom because you did bring up um, a, a new set of plugins for Atom that wasn't last episode. Yeah. It was the episode before. Oh. All these editors look a lot the same in a lot of ways. So... I can't keep up with all the new editors. Sarah, do you have a Go project you wanted to mention? Um, Feel free to say no. No, I, no, I didn't. I didn't yeah. uh, prepare one. So I'll go, I'll go next. I found this uh, HDR histogram, and it's not something I have used, but I f can't see myself using it. It's, uh, it keeps track of, the, of a sample count of um, basically incoming requests, how many simple count of incoming requests that you have. And then you can specify what it is that you want to look at over time. And so this is showing like a request per second over time or? I think it's re request per second. I, I've used this package before. I think it's more generic than just request per second. I think it's actually just a histogram package that you can use to collect metrics about any particular event and then present them in a histogram. So it, request per second is a great example of how you would use it if you were collecting yeah, metrics on a website. Exactly. It looks like that. It's configurable. But the, interesting, that. The, the, the way that I found about this was because, and, and they have a package, they have a Go version of this. And the way I found about this and why it's relevant um, is because I saw a talk by Jill Teen. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced on Strange Loop from last year. And he was talking about how network graphs usually show us the 9-5 percentile of, uh, you know, the worst request response times that you get. And he's, he goes on to talk about, in detail, about how meaningless that is and how much it hides the information that you really want to see, which is the actual count, the actual max. And he also goes on to talk about the, the difference between service time and response time. And it's fascinating because you kind of know, but you don't, I don't know. I don't usually think about it in those terms, but yeah, it <laughs> makes total sense. It's a fascinating talk. And if you want to monitor your stuff and you, what you are using is the usual commercial tools that are out there, maybe you should check this out. Um, that's it. You can, we'll have links. Will you put that link in the show notes? Yes, that sounds I like actually a great think talk. I, I already did. There it is. Perfect. So, Sarah, one project that we would love to hear you talk about is your test to doc. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really cool. Oh, thanks. 
So uh, I got this idea like uh, a year and a half ago. Um, I was maintaining a REST API for, uh, well, I was working for a company uh, called Sproutling. We were building a wearable baby monitor. Um, and so I was building a REST API that had multiple clients. We had um, custom hardware, which was uh, sort of a base station that was monitoring room temperature and stuff in the baby's room. We had an iOS app, which was a second client, and we had a web app, which was a third client. And so we had multiple developer teams working on each of these. Um, and so since I was the only person responsible for the REST API, um, well, not because of that, but I, I needed to have uh, API documentation, of course. Um, so I started using Apiary because um, I liked the format. It was it's, it, uh, You can write it in Markdown, and, um, uh, and their, their uh, specification, the API Blueprint specification is open source, which is nice. Um, and, but I, I kept, like, so for larger changes, like adding an endpoint or, um, you know, deleting an endpoint, uh, those were easy to remember to update the documentation. Um, but for smaller things like deleting a, an attribute on a, or, or all the way down to, like, deleting a column on a database table would trickle up to the endpoint change, um, which, mean the, which would mean the field was missing on the JSON response. Um, and those smaller changes started to add up a lot. And so my documentation was often really inconsistent with the actual API. Um, and so I started just, uh, I forked a tool called Dread, um, which is meant for testing your documentation against your actual API. Um, and it was pretty good, but I had to sort of periodically just run this and update all of the documentation. And so I started to get really frustrated um, because my unit tests were all there. They were all like... Um, I mean, if, if only my, my fellow engineers could read my Go unit tests and use that as documentation, like that would have worked great. Um, and so I realized that all of the information that you need for API documentation uh, is in the, the endpoint handler tests. And so I decided I was just going to record the requests and responses as uh, the test ran and put them in a markdown file in, in the appropriate format and then be able to generate all of my API documentation um, and host it and have everything be automated. So I would never have to worry about out-of-date documentation and, and angry developers and people asking me questions and things like that. So that's sort of where that came from. So when you're writing your tests, how, how much differently do you write your tests to make the documents look appropriate? Do you have to? Not at all. Not at all. It's, yeah, it's super simple. Uh, there's like uh, maybe six lines of code that you have to add. Um, but it, essentially, it's, if you have really good, really thorough unit tests, like um, you know, testing for uh, user passes nil and user passes you know, a post with no request data, um, and all of that, all of those require all of those tests are captured, and so you can see in the documentation when you pass nil, this happens. Um, so yeah, so the tests are really just um, like. If this is the request, uh, if this is the request that the user sends, what should the ap appropriate response be? And that's exactly what documentation is. Also, that's really interesting. Now, so how do you have that implemented? Your uh, statically analyzing the tests? No. Um, so I have a. Uh, actually, this is I wrote this bit a while ago, but I, I think I used the HTTP test. Um, 
I feel like they're like response reporters and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, I actually, during the test, I I paused the test right before, um, right before like the, the actual test executes and um, copy the request body from just the, um, from the request object itself and put that into a buffer somewhere, then execute the test and then copy the response data before we actually return and put that into the buffer as well. And then when the, when the full test suite is finished, flush that buffer to a file in the appropriate format. And there are some other intricacies like pulling out request uh, URL variables um, so that we don't, so that in the documentation, like for example, if you're testing um, get widgets with ID one and then get widgets with ID two, um, those would naturally be two separate URLs. So trying to figure out how to match those two together um, and note, notice that the one and two are actually variables. So there's some uh, intricacies with that. Um, same with URL, param- or, sorry, query parameters. Is this, um, does this support header logic too? Yep. Yeah. All your headers are logged um, also to the, to the same buffer and they're and- written in the appropriate format for the API blueprint. Oh, that's really awesome. I, I kind of want to play with this. Yeah, it is awesome. I love it. I use it at work. And then um, is there a way kind of to augment the documentation? So things that aren't necessarily captured by monitoring the requests and responses, things that you might want to take notes on, like yeah. um, what appropriate values are or things like that? Yeah, so um, so for each package, a uh, APIB file is spit out. And so what you actually need to do is have sort of a, I call it like a template, but it's really just the description of your API and, and sort of high level things like that. Um, those go at the top of the API B file. So, um, and so once all of your tests have run, you'll get back one API B file per package. And so you need to combine them. And so um, during that step, you could actually insert. Um, so for my current company, we have a list of all of our errors and our error codes at the top of our documentation file. And so that's generated right before we um, append all of the APIB files. So yeah, it's totally flexible. Oh, that's cool. And what's the process for this? Like, do you just, you, you run this tool after you're, you're done so that you're kind of committing this um, documentation? Yeah, so how I, ha- I have it built into our uh, CI flow. So um, uh, you push up some code um, on a feature branch, and when it's ready to land into develop the development branch or, or whatever you use, master, um, you land that in, and then we have a special hook that says, "Oh, if I'm on the master branch, um, I need to run the uh, the the sort of combine APIB file uh, script and push that up to what how I have it is I, I push that up to a separate branch, a docs branch on our repo, and then have Apiary actually read that file." to show like the parsed, beautiful API documentation. Nice. I just thought about making this, having it also, or something, another tool, make a diff um, between the the pushes, so you can see like a change log yeah. version. That would be really cool. Yeah, that would be cool. And there are a lot of things that I want to add to this, like um, a couple of people have requested Swagger support, and that's I think it's probably more common than uh, API for API documentation. Um, so that yes. yeah. Swagger has really blown up lately. Yeah, the interesting thing about Swagger though is they uh, they seem to want you to, to they seem to want you to generate your s- sort of handler skeletons. 
So I'm not really sure how that fits into this sort of test generates docs flow, because really what they want you to do is have a, um, a spec generate this, the code. So it's sort of cyclical if you, if I don't know. Yeah. So I'm not really sure how that's going to work, but um, I haven't played with it yet. So we'll see. Yeah. They kind of fit in different parts of the workflow, right? Like yeah, you said, exactly. Swagger kind of, you, you follow, you, you build to the specification and it spits out code and it knows that knows that it meets it. Whereas this tool kind of comes in after the fact and kind of gets insight yeah. into how your, your API works. Exactly. So it's a different workflow. He's the perfect workflow. You you run your you do your specs, you run it, you spit out the Swagger docs, you run the Swagger docs, and that auto generates your code. But I think this that this is interesting though because um, people love Swagger, but um, everybody likes building their APIs in different ways, and we 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 see that prevalent in like all the number of um, frameworks out there for building APIs right now. But yours, it doesn't have any ties into those specific, yeah, exactly. right? You could write in whatever you wanted to and have similar documentation to Swagger. And I think that's an awesome idea. Thanks. Yeah. The, the one issue I can see with trying to make it fit in with Swagger is that Swagger has a very, well, it has a specification. So it's strict in that way. And if you design something that does, is not supported, it's not, not necessarily they wouldn't be restful, but you wouldn't, it's not supported by that spec, that spec version that you're working with, then it just doesn't work. Well, API Blueprint has a pretty strict spec also. You just have to match sort of the data. You have to like really evaluate the spec and match the data, fit it into the spec. Yeah. So you have to have some prior knowledge of what the spec is for the tool you're working with. Sure. All right. So I think we got about 10 minutes left and I definitely don't want to close the show out without getting a chance to speak with you about your Women Who Go uh, initiatives. So could you tell us a little bit about that and kind of how things are going there? Yeah, sure. Um, We're actually growing really fast at the moment. Um, I'm sort of blown away. It's really exciting. We just launched a chapter in Tokyo. So that's really cool. Um, So, I mean, I can talk about like why I started it or how I started it. Um, yeah, talk so about it, a little bit about what it is and kind of how it got started and what, what your goals are. Yeah, sure. So um, I really wanted to create a safe space for women to enter the Go ecosystem. So I had been, I started, let's see, I started the group about a year ago and I had been going to GoSF meetups for since like uh, mid-2013. Um, so when they were still really small, like uh, like 50 people or something. Or 30. Um, and I was often like the only woman, but, like very consistently. And so I started to get a little frustrated, but the, but the meetups were so excellent that uh, it worked out okay. Then, uh, let's see, I got accepted to talk at GopherCon early 2014. And I was actually listening to a pod, a changelog podcast <laughs> um, about GopherCon. And I think it was Brian who, uh, I can't actually remember, so, someone asked a question like, how, how can we help people get more involved in the Go community or how can some, something like that? And Brian suggested that um, you start a, a group in your community, like a Go group in your community. And I sort of took that as um, my community being like women. <laughs> and I wanted to get more women involved in Go. And so I started Women Who Go. See, we had our first event about a year ago. 
um, which was really, we just talked about sort of difficulties of being a woman in tech and a woman in the Go community and uh, sort of how can we, how can we start trying to fix these issues? And I've had a meetup um, about every month for a year. And I think our largest event has been the Bill Kennedy workshop. We had 70 women attend and want to learn Go, which was really powerful. Um, but yeah, the main goal of the group is just to provide a safe environment for people, for women to learn more about Go, um, to explore. And hopefully um, the idea is that then, then they go to GoSF events or GoForCon um, once they feel a little, a little more safe. Um, and I, I think it's been working pretty well. Um, so, and then as far as like our, our 10 chapters around the world, women actually will, will message me or somehow find me on Twitter and they'll be like, uh, I see what you're doing and this is really cool. I want to start a group in Denver or, you know, wherever. And I just help them get started and, and they really run with it. Um, and so the, the number of women that have been really excited about starting groups like this has been really spectacular. That is so awesome to hear. Yeah. I'm just all verklempt over here. So keep talking. Oh, um, um, uh, well, I mean. So you said you have 10 chapters now, right? Yes, we do. So we've got um, five in the U.S. We've got um, one in Bangalore, one in London, um, one in Tokyo. Uh, shoot, I'm blanking. I've got the. If you go to womenwhogo.org. Um, you can see our list of chapters and there are also resources for if you want to get involved, but, but you don't identify as a woman. Yeah. So we've got Berlin, Bangalore, Tokyo, Mexico city and London. And then in the U S we've got Boston, Boulder, New York city, San Diego, and San Francisco. Is there, uh, information on women who for people who might be interested in starting their own chapter? Um, so not explicitly, but people have found um, the hello at women who go email address there, and that's usually how they contact me. Perfect. So I suppose I could say on the site, like, if you want to start a chapter. I think it's great when things kind of grow bigger than than you can keep track of anymore. They just <laughs> yeah, kind of like, it's amazing. Yeah. Especially when it's such a cool cause, um, trying to get more women into go. I mean, this is probably the first community that I've been a part of that had uh, at least visibly had these big, um, women, uh, only, I say women only, but, you know, advocating more women get into the community. Um, yeah. And, and they they probably exist, but it doesn't, it definitely didn't feel as prevalent as it is here. I mean, I, I've been watching kind of Twitter and seeing the new women who go chapters and stuff like that. And it's like, wow, like I can't even keep up with how many there are anymore. And I, I know. Think that's <laughs> awesome. Um, there, there are a few meetups, uh, that I've been to like Pythonistas and um, women who code has a Ruby Tuesdays for women. Um, but I haven't, I, I haven't come across any other sort of women's uh, group specific to a programming language that is spread um, across multiple chapters. Yeah. I've seen um, uh, ladies who Linux. Um, oh that, yes. That's, that's, that's right. gotten bigger. And uh, there's an infosec one too. And for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it, but. There's yeah, also Pi Ladies. Oh, Real. yeah, Pi Ladies. Pi Ladies, That's Rails huge. Girls. Oh, true. Yeah, so there's a ton. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, just, it feels stronger in the Go community, and I love that. I love the um, the push to, to have that inclusivity and that feeling of safety so anybody can come in and, and learn without worrying about external factors. That's, that's very nice. 
So be yeah. proud of what you've done. This is really cool. It's Sorry, like you were saying earlier, when you have that okay. feeling where it's growing so big, it's hard to keep track of. We, we get that same thing, Eric and I, and GopherCon, when, when somebody in Brazil sends us an email and says, hey, we want to do a GopherCon in Brazil. We, yes, please go do that. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. It's, it, that's exactly it. I mean, anything that gets uh, more people involved is always a good thing. And, yep. Yeah. I agree. More conferences, more meetups, more blogs, more podcasts. I think there's also a good opportunity to break some misconceptions. Like there are additional opportunities to break misconceptions here because there are so, so many misconceptions that women cannot program. Or even we ourselves look at ourselves and say, oh, maybe I cannot program or maybe I can program, but I cannot be great programmer. And there is a... Uh, a sense that Go is a low-level language is not as low-level as C, but it can be used for low-level systems development. And there is an additional, miscon additional misconception that women cannot do systems-level programming. I don't know if you agree that there, this exists, but I have seen it. So with Go, is a, we can help break these myths. Yeah, I think in STEM yeah. in general, there's a lot of that... Uh, being critical of um, other genders and, and their ability to do the job. And I think it's just, it's naive. I, yeah, but he exists. So that's one of the things that I love about the Go community so much is that sort of when those things pop up, people seem to be sort of all over it. Like that's really not okay. Um, and I, I love how much um, time and, and energy that uh, people like Andrew Durand and um, Jason Bubrell have put into the code of conduct. Like we, we were, um, we were going like, uh, our code of conduct thread went on for months. Um, just because people were so passionate about trying to make sure that go was so inclusive and, um, that everyone felt safe in the go community. And I really, I really thank them for that. Yeah, that, that I really applaud that effort as well. I, I think that that was uh, a fantastic thing that happened. And I mean, in general too, right? Like, uh, I know Carlisi and I have had conversations about this before. It's just everybody be nice to each other. Like what, what's, what's hard about that, you know? And um, that was one of the things I loved about this community when I came into it, because I don't have a, uh, you know, a master's degree or PhD in comp sci. Like I'm not a highly academic programmer, but there, there were these PhD people all chatting up and, and mailing lists and stuff and perfectly, you know, happy to help and answer questions and just their love of the language. They wanted to share that with people. And I think that we should do that. Whoever it is that's trying to join our community, we should be as welcoming as possible. Exactly. Yeah. And I think um, since, since we started sort of being really inclusive and being aware of that. So when we were so small, I really think that it's going to help us as we grow to maintain that sort of a sense of inclusivity and safety as opposed to other languages who are sort of trying to tack it on, like after they've grown a lot, um, it's a lot harder. Or it seems a lot harder. So for the women who are listening to the podcast or listening live, if they go to womenwhogo.org, they can see a list of chapters. Will that uh, give them the ability to find when the next meetings are? Yes, exactly. Um, there are a list of all of the, the meetup pages or in Tokyo's case, the ConPass uh, there's a Twitter account for each chapter, and some of them have Facebooks, and they're in Slack. And there are links on, for all of those on the womenwhogo.org site. And you said for people interested in potentially starting their own chapters, the best thing to yes. do is email you at hello at 
womenwhogo.org. Exactly. Awesome. Great topic. Yeah. And I think on that note, I think that we uh, are just about out of time for this episode. So unfortunately, we get to say our goodbyes. But before we do that, um, we typically uh, do the whole free software Friday hashtag where each of us just kind of uh, briefly mentions a project that we're kind of grateful for just to give support to the project and uh, its contributors for some of these things that we use every single day. Because sometimes a thank you is, you know, it's just good to give back even if you can't contribute code. So with that being said, who wants to kick this thing off? I'll start it off. So my, my free software Friday shout out this week is to the thousand plus people who have contributed to Docker. I still love Docker as a build tool and a deploy tool. Docker is a lot of fun and it, and it has made the easy things easier and some of the hard things more accessible and caused me to lose a little bit of hair every once in a while. But I, I love Docker. So, so thank you, Docker people. I'm going to shout out to um, the folks at Apiary writing the APIB uh, uh, blueprint spec really awesome and, and you guys have been um uh very accommodating of all of my uh documentation changes change requests that's awesome carlicia i will first of all i have two today but real quick give a shout out to remote meetup dot golangbridge.org is the go remote meetup initiative that's a few people are coming around to is is what the name says. If you want to give a talk uh, online and reach people who are not in your physical community, hop on there. Uh, we'll schedule a talk. I'm part of it too, so I say, I'm saying we. This is dear to my heart. I love it, especially because I'm not in a big uh, tech center. San Diego is pretty good, but it's not Boston or San Francisco. So I'm looking forward to this and people who want to. Uh, see these talks and presentations and demos and tutorials and hopefully pair programming sessions. Uh, I have people here in San Diego who want to do that. Just sign up and su subscribe and you'll get notified. And we have some stuff there already and more coming. And the other one that I've been meaning to say for the longest time is the source graph Chrome extension. Install it on your computer and then go to GitHub. And when you look at code, it's going to be magic. Uh, you get you just hover your mouse over functions and constants, and you get all sort of information, extra information that you don't have to hop to other places to see. And there is a, a, a mini tutorial video that they have, and we will include that on the show notes. It's pretty cool. Yeah, we actually have Biang, uh, one of the co-founders of Sourcegraph, lined up for an episode. So that will be coming up as well. Yes. Uh, for me this week... Uh, and hopefully I pronounce this correctly because I don't think I've ever heard anybody say it, but is Rofi, which is a uh, kind of a uh, application launcher and um, window switcher uh, for Linux. And I use that while I'm in i3 to open up new programs instead Plus of one. the good old D menu. What's that? Yeah. Plus one. Rofi's awesome. Yeah. And, and it recently had a new uh, release that it brought a lot more features and, and made it look a lot prettier. So... I've been having a blast with it. So with that said, uh, I want to thank everybody. I want to thank uh, the panel, Brian and Carlicia. And I certainly want to thank Sarah for coming on the show. I want to thank everybody who's listening now and everybody who will be listening uh, when these podcasts drop. 
uh, definitely share, share the show with uh, your fellow Go programmers. Um, best way to subscribe would be to go to gotime.fm. And we will also have a weekly email newsletter coming out uh, that you can do that. We're on uh, Twitter as well, at GoTimeFM. Uh, with that said, uh, thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you.